Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. You know, after uh, last year's corporate, my wife was always encouraging me, you know. She said, no, you did fine, you did fine in the corporate. I was a bit nervous. This little guy, hello, sorry. That's nice, eh? Yeah, it's fine. Nice background with the people just there. We are here at, uh, must I look? Yeah, just look straight into the lens, bro. We are here at uh, MNU head office, Department of Alien Affairs. My name is Vikas van der Merwe. And behind me, you can see other alien affairs workers. And what we do here at this department is we try to engage with the prawn on behalf of MNU and on behalf of humans. Now, to everyone's surprise, the ship didn't come to a stop over Manhattan or Washington or Chicago, but instead coasted to a halt directly over the city of Johannesburg. The doors didn't open for three months. It just hovered there. Nobody could get in. And they eventually decided, after much deliberation, that the best thing to do would be to physically cut their way in. We were on the verge of first contact. The whole world was watching. Expecting, I don't know, music from heaven and bright shining lights. There's a lot of moisture in here. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 163, District 9. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast, welcome back. Regular or irregular returning listeners, thank you so much for being here and for choosing this podcast. No matter how you got here, I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of District 9. This is going to be a really fun episode. I know, I always say that, but I like every single episode to be as fun as possible. And this is quite a serious subject that we're going to be talking about in District 9. So I want to try and make it fun while also talking about the serious stuff, because it is really important to talk about what District 9 actually means and what it stands for. Before I do, I want to say a huge thank you, as always, to everyone who not only listens to, well, any episode of this podcast, to be honest, I mean, there's 162 other episodes out there, but especially the most recent previous episodes of this podcast. So they were on Enchanted and Mars Attacks, two very different movies. And going from Mars Attacks, one type of alien invasion movie to another alien invasion movie. And you might be asking, well, why have you done that? Well, I kind of did that on purpose because Mars Attacks was very much about 
those chaotic aliens who come to Earth, they don't care about us, they don't give a sh They just want to cause as much chaos and basically remind us of our stupidity as much as they possibly can while also shooting us up with ray guns. Mars Attacks is a super fun movie. But then, like, the juxtaposition to something like Mars Attacks, for me, is something like District 9. Because District 9's aliens are mostly benevolent. They arrive on Earth, they have nowhere else to go, they can't go home. They're essentially refugees. They're sick, they're injured, so they have no choice but to come to Earth and to be here on Earth. And it sounds like every single refugee story that you would hear on the news, but these aren't human beings, they're aliens. But the parallels between how they're treated to how wealthy countries like the UK treat refugees is very apparent, as are the allegories between this movie, obviously set in South Africa, to apartheid. This is a fascinating movie with an even more fascinating story behind how it actually got made in the first place. So without further ado, let's just jump straight in. Here's the trailer for District 9. The whole world is watching. The course of human history has changed today. The ship appears to be stopping over Johannesburg City. They're spending so much money to keep them here when they could be spending it on other things. At least they're keeping them separate from us. How do your weapons work? <laughs> of District 9, the refugee camp set up to separate aliens from the general population. They told me I was going to get a vest. Don't worry about the vest, it'll be fine. Get the new agents, open the door please. This is an amazing fight. I haven't seen this type of setup. I don't know, this has got the markings there of, uh, so it's, it's definitely alien, but uh, it's, uh, it's not a weapon. We're seeing heavily armed forces being deployed into District 9. Nobody really knew what this place was. It's gonna be quick. It's gonna be clean. Best of all, it's gonna be quiet. There's a lot of secrets in District 9. In 1982, a massive alien ship containing a malnourished alien population appeared over Johannesburg, South Africa. 28 years later, the initial welcome by the human population has faded. The refugee camp where the aliens were located has deteriorated into a militarised ghetto called District 9, where they are confined and exploited in squalor. Multinational United is contracted to forcibly evict the population with bureaucrat Vickers van der Merwe in charge. It's during this operation that Vickers is exposed to a strange alien chemical and starts to turn into one of them. Let's run through the cast of this movie. And this is a cast of complete unknowns at the time. And we're going to start with Sholto Copley as Vickers van der Merwe, Jason Cope as Christopher Johnson, David James as Colonel Kuba Spenter, Vanessa Hayward as Tanya van der Merwe, Mandla Kaduka as Fundiswa Mahalanga, Eugene Kumbaniwa as Obasanjo, Louis Minar as Piet Smith, Kenneth Nicosi as Thomas, William Allen Young as Dirk Michaels, and Natalie Bolt as Sarah Livingston. District 9 was written by Neil Blomkamp and Terry Tatchell, and directed by Neil Blomkamp, 
and based on the short film Alive in Joburg, also by Neil Blomkamp. And the story of District 9, well, the story has to start in South Africa. And not just because this movie is set in Johannesburg. After World War II and the early days of the apartheid era, in Cape Town, a large area home to mostly black Africans and some minority white and Indian people, most of whom were former slaves, merchants and other immigrants from the Dutch East India Company's administration of the Cape Colony, a British formerly Dutch colony. It was estimated to house 1,700 to 1,800 families. In 1966, this area was named the 6th Municipal District of Cape Town, a.k.a. District 6. Apartheid, literally translated to apartheid and separateness, was institutionalised systematic racial oppression in South Africa and what's now Namibia from 1948 to the early 1990s. Apartheid denied basic human rights to non-white South Africans and the white minority dominated South Africa politically, socially and economically. White citizens were given the highest status, followed by Indians, other people of colour and finally black Africans. Black Africans were segregated and forcibly removed from their homes into segregated neighbourhoods designated for black people only. Black Africans were denied the right to vote and in areas where black people owned property or land, that land could be forcibly taken and declared white land. In 1966, District 6 was formally declared a whites-only area by the Group Areas Act. In accordance with apartheid, they believed that interracial communities were full of corruption, bred conflict and violence, and were a nest of immoral and illegal activities, including prostitution, gambling, drinking and drugs. So, forced evictions took place to take back the black districts. Between 1968 and 1982, over 60,000 black African residents were forcibly relocated to the Cape Flats area, considered a, quote, dumping ground for black African people. Government officials then declared District 6 a slum, unfit for habitation. All of the buildings in District 6 were destroyed to pave the way for a new whites-only infrastructure. Apartheid was dismantled during a transitional period of negotiation between 1990 to 1991, with the first general election with everyone of age, regardless of skin colour, legally allowed to vote in South Africa, taking place in 1994. And obviously, there's a lot more that I could go into on the history of apartheid. But there's so much more to apartheid than just that brief bit that I've just said. So much more oppression and segregation. Obviously, if it's not something that you know about, please go and read up on apartheid. There's plenty of resource online to find out more, basically, so that we can ensure that something like this never actually happens again. And apartheid basically leads us into the story of Alive in Joburg. It's a about six and a half minute short film. It's really impressive. It's available to watch on YouTube. I will put a link in the show notes. And Alive in Joburg was filmed with the same guerrilla documentary style, switching between scripted actors and interviews with real Johannesburg residents as the aliens live within the community of Johannesburg, but the fear and distrust around them grows. The residents in the short film are actually talking about Zimbabwean refugees living in their communities, although it's cleverly edited to make you believe they're talking about the aliens. Although this general feeling of prejudice and fear could relate to any group, which is one of the reasons District 9 works on so many levels. All of the visual effects in Alive in Joburg, which if you do watch the short film, very impressive to find out, they were actually produced by Neil Blomkamp himself. He was born and raised in Johannesburg and grew up during the later years of apartheid. And the fact that District 9 contains allusions to the real situation in South Africa is not an accident. But despite receiving acclaim for Alive in Joburg, District 9 was never supposed to be his first foray into Hollywood. And so basically the story kind of segues off here because we're going to talk about Peter Jackson for a little bit. And Peter Jackson was fresh off his technically incredible, visually stunning and multi-award winning The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he at the time was co-producing in 2006 a movie version of best-selling video game series Halo. And this Halo project was huge. Alex Garland was set to write it. He was hired directly by Microsoft. 
Copies of the script were dispatched across Hollywood by actors in Master Chief armor, no less. Microsoft wanted to sell the Halo project for $10 million plus 15% of the gross profits. Even they believed that this movie was going to be absolutely huge. Microsoft didn't exactly get what they wanted, but they did get Fox and Universal on the project. And Peter Jackson and his wife, Fran Walsh, plus all of the resources at Jackson's disposal at Weta Digital, plus the film would exclusively shoot in New Zealand for a summer 2007 release. At the time, Guillermo del Toro was set to direct, but as we're going to come to, there were a lot of conflicting visions for Halo. Del Toro would leave Halo to direct Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, which is a much better decision because that movie rocks. That's episode 39 of this podcast. I love The Golden Army. At this point, Halo was without a director. And that's when Jackson turned to Blomkamp. And Blomkamp jumped at the chance to direct Halo. And together they worked on script revisions. But while the studio weren't particularly confident in Blomkamp's writing or directing abilities, because bear in mind at the time, He'd not directed a full-length feature film. He was mostly known for this short Alive in Joburg, and that's how Jackson knew him. So there were a lot of conflicting thoughts about Neil Blomkamp. But what would lead to Halo's ultimate demise was a total clash at the top between Microsoft, Fox and Universal. The budget was already at $135 million and counting. Fox demanded Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh leave the project, or they would. Universal requested Jackson and Walsh instead take a pay cut, but they refused, and Halo just imploded after that. Blomkamp would say after the experience he would never work with 20th Century Fox again. That's not strictly true, but more on that a little bit later. But from the ashes of Halo came a positive working relationship between Neil Blomkamp and Peter Jackson. Jackson not only helped Blomkamp secure $30 million of funding from QED International for District 9, but also let Blomkamp have complete creative control. And additionally, they also managed to reuse props that were originally meant for Halo, which probably saved a little bit of money. Having Peter Jackson's name against the District 9 project was ultimately a blessing for Blomkamp. And Halo would instead be revived for a TV series on Paramount Plus that premiered in March of this year. QED International would end up partnering with Sony's TriStar Pictures for a distribution deal on District 9. And because Blomkamp had creative control, he contacted someone who actually never wanted to be an actor, but someone who helped him out by starring in Alive in Joburg, his old friend Shalto Copley. Blomkamp and Copley had become friends before Blomkamp's family emigrated to Canada, and Copley had supplied the younger Blomkamp with access to computers at his production company so that he could help the business with project pitches and pursue his talent and passion for 3D animation and design as per the special effects that he did for Alive in Joburg. Also on board was fellow star of Alive in Joburg, Jason Cope. Cope would mostly play Christopher Johnson but would also stand in as every other alien creature in the movie too. Most of the interaction between Shalto Copley's Vickers and Jason Cope's aliens was improvised as was, to be honest, most of Shalto Copley's lines were actually improvised. Cope's dialect on set was changed in post-production to the alien language. And the District 9 project actually came together reasonably quickly for a first-time director and an unknown cast, mostly due to the powerhouse that was Peter Jackson. District 9 was filmed in the winter season in South Africa, so for us Northern Hemispherians, I don't know if that is a word, but I'm going to say that it is, that was the June and July. These months were chosen because Johannesburg looked the most bleak and deserted in those months. It was shot on location in Chiawello, Soweto, during a time of violent clashes between native South Africans and Africans from other countries. It was filmed in locations of real slums, and its inhabitants were, ironically, also being relocated to government-subsidised housing in a different area. All of the shacks were genuine resident shacks, except for Christopher Johnson's shack, which was built for filming. Filming took 60 days and was hampered by rain and general bad weather. The producers and crew chose to use the digital Red One 4K camera because the film required a lot of handheld shooting. It's obviously shot in a pseudo-documentary style. Trent Opalock, the cinematographer, primarily filmed using nine digital Red Ones owned by Peter Jackson, Opalock is probably most well known for being the director of photography on 
Captain America the Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. District 9 was his first feature-length cinematography gig. There's a lot of firsts in this movie. He was also supposed to work on Halo as well. Opalock and Blomkamp had collaborated for the previous six or seven years on music videos, commercials and short films before they worked together on District 9. The red one was used as the film's primary camera system. The film crew employed three Sony EX-1 cameras for documentary portions and corporate video style shots created for the MNU scenes and had two cameras operating most of the time up to nine on big stunts. They had three mini HF-100s for things like security cameras, in-car dash cams and gun mounts, along with a Phantom for extremely high-speed photography, different Sony HD cameras in the Cineflex HD heli mount, and an infrared camera. The crew was often shooting in hostile environments with punishing dust and wind and extreme temperature shifts throughout the day. An estimated 90% of the film is handheld, but they did also use dollies, vehicle mounts, tripods and linear tracking bases at times, mostly for long lenses, but always held a loose breathing frame to provide continuity across the scenes. When it came to designing the alien race for District 9, the design primarily fell to Weta Workshop. And it's probably about the right time to say, I feel really weird about calling them prawns because it's used in the movie as a very derogatory term. And so... I really don't want to call them prawns. I'm just going to refer to them as the alien race. So Weta Workshop designed the alien race for District 9. The design was meant to feel both human and alien, with a bipedal creature resembling a human, but also having that exoskeletal crustacean hybrid feel. Blomkamp wanted the alien creatures to have kind and relatable eyes because human beings generally find it easier to empathise with humanoid characters than they do with characters that maybe don't look so human. Weta also designed the two and a half kilometer diameter mothership and the dropship. Weta Digital couldn't work on the visual effects for District 9 though because they were too busy with Avatar. So Blomkamp contacted Vancouver-based Image Engine, who'd not done the visual effects for a feature film before, another first for this movie. But since this was a project full of firsts and due to a hefty tax break for working in Vancouver, Blomkamp and Image Engine seemed to be the perfect fit. Image Engine grew to a crew size of 110 and completed 311 visual effects shots for District 9 with the responsibility of animating the three main characters, Christopher, Paul and Little CJ, aliens based on conceptual designs from Weta Workshop, as well as the larger numbers of aliens populating the film. They started working on building the assets in May 2008 and the VFX work started in September, concluding in June 2009, using proprietary software called Jabuka, a comprehensive tool that could bring in assets and use them in shots, with a GUI for picking different shots and attaching assets to other things. They used a liberal blend of motion capture, rotomation and keyframing to accomplish the animation, depending on what kind of shots the aliens existed in, with composition key to the decision. Motion capture was used wherever they could, and Jason Cope would often walk on stilts to get the alien line of sight correct because the aliens themselves are about seven foot tall. Little CJ, Christopher's child, was made using keyframe animation. Rather than attempting to implement a half-prosthetic hybrid, the company ultimately chose to use entirely CG aliens. Blumkamp had a fairly clear vision of what he was aiming for, wanting them to be vividly coloured, which is difficult because it appears realistic on an insect, but difficult to recreate when scaled up. It was an evolutionary process because he wanted them to move differently, to be jittery and edgy with razor-sharp movements that a human couldn't do, Blomkamp began to stray away from motion capture. The rotomation that was used to overlay the performance accounted for the majority of the film's effort. One scene in the movie presented a very unique problem for Image Engine, though, and that is the scene within the alien mothership. So the alien mothership's interior is briefly visible and it's filled with hundreds of the alien creatures, some of which can be seen extending back into the shadows. Although it arrived at Image Engine quite late in the production, it's shown rather early on in the movie. It was originally known as the 100 alien shot, but over time it changed to the 1 million alien shot. 
This had to fit within what they'd already constructed because they were at a point in the pipeline where they had built all of their assets and completed everything they needed to complete. Jeremy Misana, a technical animator, created a technique that could arrange hundreds of aliens in this space. They had to create rigs that were lightweight enough to allow them to populate this vast area with a variety of animations, using 3D geometry for the foreground and 2D cards for the background. It was basically the pinnacle of teamwork, because at ImageEngine, everyone in the team collaborated on this one single shot. The exosuit and the little insect-like pets were designed by the Embassy visual effects. The main task for the Embassy was to keyframe, animate, render and composite large pieces of extraterrestrial weapons, a wearable robotic suit of armour, with the goal of achieving seamless integration into the movie's pivotal fight sequence. The team's segment was primarily captured using the handheld red cameras. They employed HDR lighting to match the set's colours, while they tracked and dropped the robot-like exosuit onto the plates. Shake was used to composite the CG in the scene after it had been animated and produced in Autodesk's soft image. The embassy had never had to work with Weta Digital and Image Engine to such a degree previously, but their partnership was a key component of the entire District 9 production, and the outcome was much better than they had actually anticipated. Based on whose work was more important in each shot, they decided early on which team would finish each one. To basically put it another way, the embassy was able to see its own strands of the project through to completion. There were some scheduling conflicts because Weta was in New Zealand and Image Engine and the embassy were in Vancouver. But despite the time differences, the collaboration was successful because the effects in District 9 do still hold up. It's been 13 years and the effects still look great in this movie. And one of the main reasons why I think I love this movie so much is this is a movie of so many firsts. So many people are given a chance to shine in this movie. People that probably in the studio system now would not be given that chance. And I think that's why District 9 is such an important piece of cinema. It's such an important piece of sci-fi cinema. But it's also a really important look at our past and what we can do to change that past and how we can look at ourselves and make differences. One of the most obvious things that sprung to my mind when I watched this movie is the cultural oppression that the South Africans in this movie are placing upon the alien residents. Because if you look back at when Africa was colonised and slaves were shipped over to English-speaking countries, those slaves were forced to take the names of their slave masters. And their African names, their traditions, their dialects and their histories were basically stolen from them. And a similar thing happens in this movie too, with the MNU renaming aliens with English names. Names like Christopher Johnson and his friend Paul. This isn't explicitly stated in the movie, but it is in the additional material. It's also in the subtitles as well, that Christopher Johnson's son is called CJ, although in some of the additional materials he's also called Oliver. And speaking of names... We're going to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. There is a point that I'm saying this, I promise. So this is the part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And obviously it's quite difficult to link him to District 9 in so many ways. But I did a little bit of research and I did realise that Keanu has technically inspired two famous South African sports stars. There is a rugby star called Keanu Verz and a footballer called Keanu Cupido. And Keanu Cupido was actually born in Soweto, Johannesburg. Really, the only way that I could link Keanu to this movie was to link him to South Africa. I could have done it via the movie that he stars in with famous South African actress Charlize Theron, but I figured that would be too obvious. So I decided to go for two South African sports stars, both called Keanu, presumably after Reeves, although, who knows? When it came to the music of District 9, Neil Blomkamp wanted a very raw and dark score for the movie, but also one that sounded distinctly South African. Canadian composer Clinton Shorter used a combination of taiko drums and synthesised instruments. The score and the soundtrack also features music and vocals from Kuwaito musicians and artists. And Kuwaito is a South African variant of house music that I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. And to be honest, I hope I've pronounced 
actors' names correctly when I went through the list of actors as well. And I apologise if I have mispronounced any words. To advertise District 9, Sony Pictures ran a humans-only marketing campaign. The marketing department at Sony created the advertising to resemble the segregationist billboards that are shown throughout the movie. With this concept in mind, billboards, banners, posters and stickers were created. The material was then dispersed across public spaces, such as bus stations in different cities, with humans-only signs placed in specific areas, and toll-free lines provided to report non-human activities. The deployment of the phony segregationist propaganda is part of a marketing strategy meant to elicit responses from its target demographic, which includes sci-fi aficionados and anti-discrimination activists. Over a two-week period, an estimated 33,000 calls were placed to the toll-free numbers and 2,500 left voicemails with accounts of extraterrestrial sightings. Despite an unknown director and cast, the unusual marketing for District 9 made it stand out in a crowded summer 2009. District 9 was released on the 14th of August 2009 and its opening weekend totals were comparable to the previous year's Cloverfield. It opened at number one, beating The Time Traveller's Wife to third. The following week it dropped to second as Inglorious Bastards was released. And District 9 was a huge financial success. It grossed $115.6 million domestically in the US and $95 million internationally for a worldwide total of $210.8 million against a production budget of $30 million. Documents from the Sony Pictures hack revealed that the film turned a profit of $67 million, which again, for a first-time director and an unknown cast and literally a list of first-time people on this movie, a profit of $67 million is not to be sniffed at. And not only was it a huge financial success, the critical response to District 9 was also positive with a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. And as far as film critics were concerned, most film critics really saw the positives in this movie. But there was some criticism that was aimed at District 9. The response in Nigeria wasn't so positive. Many Nigerians weren't happy with the negative portrayal of Nigerians as criminals and cannibals. District 9 would go on to be banned in Nigeria. It's worth noting that the Nigerian members of the cast didn't seem to have issues, according to Malawian actor Eugene Kumbaniwa, who played the Nigerian gang leader Obasanjo. The movie has also caused controversy in relation to its depictions of the white saviour trope, as a white South African is the hero of the movie, and the allegory to apartheid means that instead of showing the negative effects of colonialism, it actually shows the white South African government agent quote-unquote saving the alien population, which in themselves are a metaphor for the black South Africans who suffered so greatly during apartheid. All of this aside, District 9 was a genuine phenomenon at the time. It would end up being nominated for four Academy Awards. It would be nominated for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing and Best Visual Effects. It would also be nominated for seven BAFTAs, including Best Cinematography, Best Screenplay Adapted, Best Editing, Best Production Design, Best Sound, Best Special Visual Effects, and a nomination for the David Lean Award for Best Director, and additionally, one Golden Globe nomination for Best Screenplay. It wouldn't actually win any of these, but the fact it was nominated, again, was such an achievement for this movie. It would go on to win a Saturn Award for Best International Film. And at the end of this movie, we are told that District 10, the settlement area for the aliens outside of Johannesburg, is now set up and fully functional. And that was basically the ideal setup for a proposed sequel to District 9. But the sequel to District 9 has been stuck in development hell for years. Neil Blomkamp would stick with the science fiction genre for his next two movies, Elysium and Chappie, both of which would reunite him with Charlotte Copley but neither would garner the same critical or box office reaction. Copley would go on to have a fantastic couple of years with starring roles in the 18 remake, the Old Boy remake, Maleficent, and most recently in the TV series Russian Doll. After years of non-starts, other movies and other failed movies, most interestingly, his proposed and then cancelled Alien 5, 
I did briefly talk about this in the episode that I did on Prometheus and Alien Covenant, but in 2015, Neil Blomkamp announced plans to helm the fifth film in the Alien franchise. And his concept was based on his own original artwork and was set to take place immediately after events depicted in Aliens, completely ignoring Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. Franchise stars Sigourney Weaver and Michael Bean were set to reprise their roles as Ripley and Hicks. However, as both Alien Covenant and Alien 5 were moving forward simultaneously, Fox wanted to prioritise Alien Covenant. And this is going back to what I said before about Neil Blomkamp saying that he would never work with Fox again. That's technically not true because Alien 5 would obviously have been a Fox movie, but eventually Fox would ask Blomkamp to delay Alien 5 until the release of Alien Covenant. But ultimately, Alien 5 was cancelled by Fox in May 2017. So Neil Blomkamp, probably still not best mates with Fox at all. Blomkamp would finally confirm in 2021 that District 10 was going ahead with Terry Tatchell and Sholto Copley co-writing the screenplay with him. But let's be honest, Christopher in District 9 was supposed to come back in three years. So it's been 13 years. I think it's been long enough. Christopher does definitely need to come back. A group of people who always come back for my episodes, though, is my ever faithful commenters. So I like to ask on social media what people think of the movie that I'm featuring. And I like to start with the patrons and then we're going to move on to Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We're going to start with perennial commenter Andy, as always. And he says, Okay, full disclosure, I will never forgive District 9 for taking the Best Picture nomination slot from Star Trek. Now that's out of the way, District 9, a film I haven't seen in a very long time, but what I remember is a very intriguing take on the apartheid state of South Africa with a sci-fi spin. It's a film that takes a lot of risks and cements Neil Blomkamp as a premier voice in the world of science fiction for class warfare. Probably should watch this one again. And I would say to you, Andy, that I think you should absolutely watch this again. I would absolutely recommend, if you've not seen this movie in a while or you've not seen this movie at all, should absolutely go and watch this movie because it is absolutely fantastic. And the final patron comment comes from Zoe, who said, Love this movie, it was fun and had so many layers. And Zoe is the host of the Backlook Cinema podcast, which started with Zoe introducing his son Zach to the movies that he watched when he was young, and then basically Zach would give his opinion. If you love a passionate movie fan talking about the movies that we all grew up with, then you will love Backlook Cinema. I will pop some information in the show notes. Let's move over to Twitter. And we're going to start with at director Neil, who said, I think this film changed cinema from this point onwards, perhaps in a small way, but it resonates in so many other films. The character writing of the aliens really sold it. They were strangely relatable. At the real, P-E-E-E-E-T-E, still love that name, said, Blomkamp's vision and tone for District 9 was unlike anything I'd seen in 2009 and earned a lifetime following from me. The creature and tech design feels natural and fully fleshed out, as well as having a story with heart from a non-human character and real-world parallels to boot. At We Watched a Thing, said, I know I'm on a hill of my own here, but I don't understand the love for this movie at all. I think it's fairly poorly constructed, and I hate the turn from mockumentary to action halfway through. It doesn't work at all for me. At TIAAD Media said, This movie was an incredible directorial debut with some great viral marketing. The body horror aspects are kept relatively minimal, which I appreciate, but it doesn't shy away from showcasing the atrocities of the humans. This film is, in my opinion, sci-fi at its finest. Strong social and political commentary in allegorical form wrapped in a well-paced package with some great action scenes. At At Pedestrian said, I only saw it at release back then. I liked his approach to the body horror aspect. It strikes a good tone between comical and shocking. At Diabolical Pod said, It's weird how it stops being a mockumentary halfway through and becomes a conventionally shot film. Sholto Copley gives a tremendous performance. At I Seen It Pod said, Brilliant film, and the majority of it all being improved captures the mockumentary presentation wonderfully. At Sarah Hamstera said, Hugely accurate and disturbing analysis of segregation. 
that part was maybe the most frightening. At Laugh Matician said, One of the strongest directorial debuts ever. This movie has a bit of everything. Cool action, thought-provoking social commentary, body horror, fantastic performances. District 9 deserves to be on the list of sci-fi classics. And at Made Up Movies Pod said, He blew it. And I'm not sure exactly what Made Up Movies Pod is referring to when they say he blew it. But, obviously, maybe they don't like this movie. And that's absolutely fine. Because it is absolutely fine to not like movies. It's absolutely fine to not like this movie. I personally love this movie. And I think this movie is tremendous. And so do the vast majority of the commenters too, it would seem. But you can't like everything at the end of the day. And all comments that I read out are valid comments. We don't actually have any valid comments positive or negative on Instagram or Facebook because no one commented, sadly. But as always, a huge thank you to the patrons and to everyone on Twitter for your thoughts and comments on District 9. District 9 following Mars attacks in the verbal diorama list was deliberate. Those malicious aliens of Mars attacks intent on causing chaos and laughing at our stupidity is one way the inevitable alien invasion will go. The other is this. If a mostly benevolent, incapacitated alien species landed on Earth needing help, this is exactly what we'd do. We'd round them up, experiment on them, put them in cages designed as camps, and humans would mistrust them. Because let's face it, we do pretty much exactly the same to other human beings fleeing persecution and war. These aliens are illegal immigrants to Earth, and we use government policies and bureaucracy to feign the offer of help for our own selfish needs. Yes, an alien ship suddenly appearing over Johannesburg is the terrifying stuff of nightmares. And yes, we will all be naturally suspicious of an alien race. But the metaphor is as clear as day. The fact this is all taking place in South Africa with a violent, oppressive history of apartheid is all on purpose just to bring home the point that this is how most white people treat people of colour. This is E.T. Go Home for a race who wants to go home and who wants to leave this godforsaken planet and our cruel tyranny, such as making aliens addicted to cat food so humans can exploit that addiction. This is mostly filmed as a documentary and includes scenes of Vickers nonchalantly taking alien eggs off life support because, and I'm paraphrasing here, we don't want more of their kind here, and threatening to take alien children into care unless their parents comply with unlawful forced evictions. And this is something that I briefly touched on in the last episode on Mars Attacks, even though it wasn't really relevant to Mars Attacks at all, but I feel like it's relevant here because there was an undercurrent during the recent repelling of Roe versus Wade in the US that the reason the primarily white Supreme Court in America has reversed reproductive and abortion rights is because not enough white babies are being born in America right now. And if you think about it, the whole there's not enough white babies versus there's too many brown and black babies is exactly the same thing as this movie burning alien nests because the quote-unquote alien population needs controlling. District 9 may be critically derided in some areas, but I think it's astutely smart in others. And that scene with the alien eggs hit me hard. And I wasn't expecting it to. And I think it hit me hard because of what's going on with Roe versus Wade at the moment, because I am very distinctly pro-choice and I always have been pro-choice. I am not pro-life, but those eggs were babies wanted by those aliens. And there is a difference. Vickers starts the movie as a human with no empathy or understanding of the alien's plight and ends the movie as an alien, fully redeemed and remorseful. We can't all become an immigrant, but we can at least empathise with their situations, I think, more than we do. And this is a wholly original film by an unknown director with an unknown cast. Movies like this that are as smart in their satire and commentary as this don't exist anymore, but they need to. Despite its obvious roots in real South African history, this movie still feels original and maybe because of what we know happened in South Africa, feels emotionally resonant as a statement on race relations. And if we do ever get District 10, I hope it's as smart, creative, and thought-provoking as District 9 is. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on District 9. And if you do love this podcast and you do want to get involved and have comments read out in episodes, then 
I put up thoughts posts on a Saturday over on my Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. It's at Verbal Diorama on all of those. Basically, if you want to get involved, you want your comment read out, leave a comment on one of those posts and I will read it out and I will credit you. It's really that easy. But ultimately, supporting this podcast doesn't cost you anything at all. The easiest and cheapest and freest way, I guess, of supporting this podcast is leaving a rating or review wherever you found it. You can retweet or like posts on social media. As I said, at Verbal Diorama, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and also Letterboxd as well. Or you can tell your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they're a fan of District 9. And if they've never seen District 9, then maybe you should show them District 9 because this is an important movie wrapped in this sci-fi wrapping. But take away the wrapping and there's a really important message in this movie that I think a lot of people need to watch. And if you have liked this episode on District 9, you might also like the following episodes slash movies if you've never seen them. So I feel like I have to recommend episodes 108 on Alien and 114 on Aliens. Now, I have done the whole Alien franchise actually on this podcast, but those two movies very specifically are absolute masters of their crafts. Ridley Scott did Alien, James Cameron did Aliens. They are both very different movies, but they are absolutely fantastic. And, you know, this is a movie with Aliens. That's a movie with Aliens. Completely different Aliens, obviously. But if you like Aliens, then you'll like those movies. Episode 147, Starship Troopers. This was one that I probably should have recommended last episode on Mars Attacks, but I don't think I did. The Starship Troopers is a hell of a lot of fun. I like it very much. I enjoy it a lot for its satire. District 9 satire is not so overt as it is in Starship Troopers, but boy, is it good fun. So yeah, I think you would really like Starship Troopers. And the previous episode, 162, Mars Attacks, because great double feature, Mars Attacks and District 9. Put them together, enjoy them, watch them. They're very different, but also kind of a little bit similar as well. As always, give me feedback. Let me know what you think of my recommendations. The next episode actually influenced District 9. According to director Neil Blomkamp, it was one of many movies that influenced District 9, including actually Alien and Aliens. They were both influences for District 9 too. But we're not going to Alien and Aliens because I've already done those. But this one I definitely have not. This movie, we're going to be going a little bit into the future, actually. We're going to be going to 2029. At a time when the machines have taken over. But let's hope this movie isn't prophetic. Although we all have Amazon Echoes in our house, so maybe it will be. Skynet sends a cyborg back to 1984 to kill the mother of the future leader of the Resistance. Her name is Sarah Connor. And the next episode is, of course, on The Terminator. A movie I haven't actually seen for at least 20 years because it genuinely scared me. So I actually went out and I bought a Blu-ray of The Terminator. I actually also bought Terminator 2 Judgment Day. But I've always preferred Judgment Day to the original. So I felt like I need to give The Terminator another chance. It's been 20 odd years. I'm sure I won't be scared anymore. I probably will be. I'm really looking forward to doing The Terminator. So come back next week and join me for The Terminator. And I mentioned before all of the ways that you can support this podcast for absolutely nothing, which you should absolutely do, by the way. But if you do want to support this podcast financially, you can also do that too. Although you are under no obligation, you never will be. But patrons of this podcast, they get some really lovely little perks, actually. They get access to early episodes. They get the schedule up front. So they know like about a month in advance what's coming on the podcast. They get freebies. And they also have the warm glow in their hearts when they realise that they are making Verbal Diorama a better podcast for everyone. And they genuinely are because their money that I get from patrons goes to new equipment, new subscriptions, better software, all of that sort of stuff. So I'm really grateful to the people who do choose to support me financially. And because they support me financially, I give them swears on episodes now. Have I done a swear this episode? I might have done one swear this episode. But Verbal Diorama Patreon episodes aren't just early. 
They're also a little bit sweary sometimes. The main feed will always be free, it will always be family friendly, and it will always be suitable for all ages. But if you are interested, it's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And a huge thank you to the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Jason, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas and Zoe. I'd just like to take this moment to say that non-human patrons are very welcome here. I have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch if you're keen. You can also get in touch. You can say hi. You can give me feedback or suggestions. Verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com and fill out the contact form. And you can also go to filmstories.co.uk and you can find bits that I write on there, including online articles and you can buy magazines and stuff. Support independent British journalism, guys, as well as British independent podcasting. Yes. <laughs> and finally. You guys haven't seen my wife. Let me show you my wife. My special angel. She, she even looks like an angel with a halo. Do you want to see that? Look, you see with the white veil over the over the edge, she even looks like an angel. Now everyone says that his wife is an angel, but this is a real angel that you are seeing there on the cameras. They won't put that in the video, I don't think. I found this at my front door. As though somebody had just left it there. My friend said I should just throw it away because it's just a piece of rubbish. That couldn't possibly come from him. I know it's true. Bye. Movie should know, movie should know.